So good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of STEM Tea Podcast, the series that's all about the latest social, societal, and scientific developments in STEM, from establishing healthy and productive research environments to navigating difficult conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm your host, Dr. Antonor Arthro Hitton Jr. Call me AJ for the podcast, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics here at the wonderful School of Vanderbilt University. And this podcast is brought to you by Biotechniques, and I share my advice on mentoring, expanding cultural humility, cultural competency in the lab, and speaking about different guests and talking about what they have to offer to the scientific community as a whole. Today's episode will be a variety of speakers that are from various different backgrounds. We have Dr. Vivian Gamma, Dr. Jose Gomez, Dr. Elsie Spencer, Dr. Edgar Garza-Lopez, and today we'll be talking about what it means to be a Latino or Latina scientist in STEM, and we'll also be talking about some of their various backgrounds, how they incorporate that into their laboratories, and then also some of them do various different jobs where there's some people that do consulting, some people are starting a business and consulting as well. And we wanna kind of highlight those things because I think those are important that makes us diverse in science. So I'll start with each individual. I'll call on you and then you call on the next person so we can introduce ourselves. I'll start with Dr. Vivian Gamma. Please introduce yourself to us. Hi, thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Hinton. Oh, can I call you AJ? Yes, you can. <laughs> it's really an honor to be here. I am an associate professor at Vanderbilt University also in the Department of Cell and Developmental Biology. And I am also part of the Vanderbilt Stem Cell Biology Center. Dr. Gomez, could you go next if you don't mind? Thank you, Dr. Hinton. Can I call you AJ? Yes, you can. And you can you can call me Jose. <laughs> Okay, I'll call you. Really good collaborators. <laughs> My name is Jose Gomez, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Spencer? You can call me Dr. Spencer. Just kidding. You can call me Elsie. <laughs> <laughs> I am a postdoc in Dr. Hitton's lab at Vanderbilt, and I'm also an administrative director at Teachers College, Columbia University, and I'm so happy to be here. And Dr. Edgar Garza-Lopez, could you tell us about yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Edgar Garza. You can call me Edgar, and I'm working in Dr. Hinton lab as a research scientist. Thank you very much. Okay, so then we can go ahead and get started. So we can talk a little bit about today's topic, about research first, because I'm very curious about your research, because we're all scientists, so we want to talk about that. And I know some of you do different types of research. It would be a great topic to actually introduce everyone to. So this time, I will kind of mix it up and go different orders. So Dr. Spencer, since you do STEM education research, we'll start with you. Then we'll go to biomedical. And then we'll go to biophysics research at the end with Dr. Edgar Garza-Lopez. Okay, so Dr. Spencer, I'm going to call you Elsie now. Go right ahead and kind of explain what you do. Sure. So my research comprises STEM education, as Dr. Hinton said, and basically what I like to talk about and research further are DEI efforts within the STEM field. So those that may not be familiar with STEM, it's an acronym for science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. You can't forget the extra M for that. And we talk about ways that we can try to build inclusivity and diverse numbers and meaningful numbers within academia in all ranks. So we're talking about seasoned, senior faculty, junior faculty, postdoctorate fellows. I talk a lot about that. Also, how to catch the leaking pipeline within academia, 
How do we mentor students? How do we mentor junior faculty, allowing them to sort of navigate the challenges that are brought about by the academia arena, such as publishing, such as obtaining grants, those types of things. So that's very important conversation for us to have and publish about. And prior to my research in STEM education, I was also a laboratory manager at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. And so I do bring the perspective and the knowledge of academia from an administrative perspective. So hiring faculty, allowing them to sort of progress through the tenure and promotions committee, what that entails, you know, starting a lab from scratch, hiring people for the lab, putting in IRBs, things like that. So I have that perspective as well. And that lends itself to the conversation when we publish, when we brainstorm, and when we talk about how do we support DEI within STEM. Awesome. And could you speak a little bit also about some of the research that you do in the laboratory related to maternal health research? I know that it's an epidemiology study, and I think it's with Cuba, but could you talk about that just briefly? I know it's top secret, but at least you Yeah, so it's still kind of embargoed, so I can just kind of give a very brief overview. So we are collaborating with a Cuban epidemiologist in Havana, and the hopes in that would come up to us visiting them in person and giving a speech a talk about that with the Hinton Laboratory and sort of exchanging ideas. So it's nothing involving any technology or anything like that. And as everyone knows, Cuba is this powerhouse with regards to education and medicine. And the phenomenon behind that is how do we research topics that are important to the U.S., but also important from a global perspective? And how do they manage to actually be this powerhouse without any funds, right? And so that's sort of the phenomenon. How can you be so great yet have a trickle of the finances and the financial support and backing that everyone else has? So that's something that we're looking at. And again, it's more or less like an observation, not a comparing contrast, like why the U.S. is better and Cuba is not. That's not the dialogue that we are trying to accomplish with that. And so hopefully our colleagues in Cuba will definitely be able to share that perspective and be you know, an active participant in that type of discourse. Thank you very much for that. And so now we'll switch over to some research, then we'll switch over to more other things as well. So Dr. Gamma, can I call you Vivian? Is that okay? Yes, please. please okay. Thank you. Could you tell us about your research program and how you mentor? Because I think it's just phenomenal what you're doing. Thank you so much, AJ. Yeah, my lab is focused on understanding the function of organelle biology and communication during cellular transitions. And we are particularly interested in neurogenesis. So as a cell is a progenitor cell and becomes a specialized neuron, how organelle biology and communication, in particular mitochondria, is regulated to this transition. And we are looking at organelles more as master regulators of these cell decisions during development. So we use induced pluripotent stem cell model systems to do our research. As background, I am originally from Colombia, where actually I got my Bachelor of Science in Bogota from the Universidad de los Andes. And I actually, during my time as an undergrad, I came to the U.S. to study English, as many of us do. And then while I was here, I was amazed, you know, as, as Dr. Spencer was mentioning, of the resources and kind of the 
tools that were available to researchers here in the U.S. and contrasting that with the resourcefulness, I guess, of the Colombian system, where we didn't have many of the resources. Just to give you an example, there was one PCR machine in the whole institute, and everyone had to work around one PCR machine. And it was never something that we will think, oh, you know, we wish we had five. No, we knew that was the way it was in the Institute. So I, that's how I got into science. But as you, me- you mentioned mentoring. And so since I started this career, I've been fortunate to have mentors along the way. And a lot of them have been actually informal mentors, not the you know formal mentors that you are assigned when you join a lab. But many of those mentors were, for the most part, were more experienced than I was. So perhaps the eagerness and the desire that I had to work in the lab and to put extra time. And then they also gave back a lot of advice. And one of the advice I received when I was in Colombia a long time ago was, if you want to dedicate your life to science, unfortunately, Colombia may not be the place. Maybe there is an option for you to get a graduate education and potentially come back. So when I came to the U.S., I initially came to do a master's in clinical sciences with the idea of going back to Colombia. But during the master's, I, again, met mentors along the way and realized for the first time Because, you know, when you come from a developing country, you are always wondering whether you have what it gets to work in the U.S. And I realized within that time, oh, wow, if I work hard, I see results. Like that was one of the immediate kind of feelings that I had as a scientist here in the U.S., that I started getting awards because I had good grades. And then that meant a little bit of an incentive, you know, financial or or just a personal incentive. And unfortunately, in Colombia, we don't have resources for that. And that came along also with the opportunity to do a PhD. And so that's how I got kind of in the root of PhD and realized that this is what I wanted to do. I can imagine another career that is not what I am doing now. And then I joined a PhD at Case Western Reserve University. And there were many challenges as a immigrant and when your visa is dependent on an institution or a specific lab. So it was really for the first time now, you know, you are kind of like a honeymoon and then you start realizing, okay, there are some disparities here, not only that we were experiencing, but also that our mentors were experiencing. And because those disparities were there, they could not execute their role as mentors at 100%. And so we started to realize, or at least I became really interested in in seeing what does it make a good mentor? How you can become a person that can guide someone else that is actually, you realize then you have people looking up to you, which is very exciting, but also very scary. And then I was very fortunate to go to the lab of Dr. Mohanish Deshmukh at UNC at Chapel Hill. And I have told him this many times. He changed the course of my life because when I was a postdoc, I was thinking about being a non-tenure track faculty member. This is because I've never really seen anyone who looked like me. So it's not like I said, oh, I don't see anyone like me, so I won't do that. It was just not even in my time. Like I didn't even consider it. 
And Mohanish, from the first day in his lab, he asked, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a non-tenure track faculty member. And he was like, why? But he just listened to me and then supported the path. And I got to, I can talk more about that later. But I think that that example that Mohanish gave me, he allowed me to be myself. And that's what I strive to do with my mentees. I don't want to change them. I don't want them to become myself or to have my own goals. I want them to get to know their own goals. And I will be here to support that path, whatever that path is. And so we first worked very hard on identifying what that path is. You know, a lot of the students that come to our lab, they don't really know this. And I, I hope that more mentors knew that they need the space and the time to figure things out on their own, to see what is it that they want to do. At the same time that you accomplish and you do and work in the lab at the highest standard. So that is kind of a long overview of how I got here. Thanks, Sanjay. Thank you, Dr. Gomez. I'm going to call you Jose because you already said Yes, that's great. So could you tell us a little bit about your background as well? Yes, AJ. Thank you. I have very similar paths with Vivian. I'm from Colombia. I did my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering at the Universidad Nacional in Medellin. I'm originally from Medellin. And when I did my undergrad, I had the fortune to work with one of the persons that I consider to be a mentor of my career. And during my undergrad, he was my thesis advisor and mentor. And he was one of the few professors that had a a study outside Colombia. He went to Brazil and he recommend me, strongly recommend me, you gotta study, as Vivian mentioned, we have mentors that tell us, if you wanna do this, you gotta go and do a master's. That was the initial step, do a master's degree outside Colombia. Then actually he hired me to work. I was initially hired in the Universidad Nacional And after that, I moved to Universidad del Valle, another university, to be a scientist. Both jobs were scientists. I was hired in Universidad del Valle. And through that job, I was twice in training in Mexico. One was a training through United Nations, and the other was training through Sciences, which is similar to NIH. That's the main granted offices for, for Colombia. Then I went to train in Mexico. And in both times that I was in Mexico, they said, you got to go out. You got to get out of Colombia, get a graduate degree, go to graduate school and come back. And that was, as Vivian mentioned, that was my initial goal. I will go to the United States, get a master's and come back. Then I came I didn't speak English. I was able to read because all the literature for engineering was in English. Then I learned how to read English and how to write in English for my classes. Then I came here. We went to Wisconsin to study English and came back to do a master's. I did a master's degree in chemistry at the University of Wisconsin. And as Vivian mentioned, then you realize, oh, we are able to get into classes to learn to have good grades, to present our work at national meetings as well as, as internal meetings. Then we decided that the next step was a PhD, and we did a PhD in pharmacology. And during this time, I had some mentors. I had had 
work with other people that are PIs and you see the struggles. I'll say that for all of us, you will see the struggles. One thing that I remember doing since I was in my master is that every time I went to a talk, either at the university or when we were in meetings, that I always look at the acknowledgement and see if I saw somebody with my background, last names or names. It was, you will count maybe less than 1% of the time you will see a name that you can infer that was from our countries, a Latino. Then we, we went, we did the PhD, and during the postdoc, I was fortunate to work with Victor Sao at Duke, and it was a great experience. I learned a lot about animal models. I learned a lot about presentations working and working in a high-paced environment. And then I came to Vanderbilt University, and here I see the challenges. There are a lot of challenges. Every week, I have to deal with challenges, and I do less mentoring. My group is small. I'm more hands-on. I have a lot of experience with animals. Then I, I, in my lab, they want doing most of the, the animal work or supervising very closely that part. I think that by building collaborations with UAJ, with Vivian, and with other people here, I'm able to, to do the research I, I do. And I know all the challenges from being a Latino, and I'm trying to work through them as better as we can. That's like a little bit of a long elevator speech about where I am from and what I do. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Edgar Garza-Lopez, I'm going to call you Edgar. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, (laughs) your BS degree, your PhD and postdoc? Yes. So I'm Edgar. I'm a biologist from my major in Mexico City. I did my studies in the National Autonomous University of Mexico. That is called UNAM. And yeah, always my passion has been the biology. Always I've been a person that since child that I've been in contact with nature. I like to be in contact with insects, with plants, and travel to all the beautiful places in Mexico that we are in contact with, with nature. And always I've been a very curious person asking me about everything. So that's why I decided to study biology. And... From there, one of the reasons that I focused my studies in, in science more as try to be a scientist is because I have a migraine that is kind of migraine all my life. I have migraine with aura. This kind of migraine is very particular. And I started to read while I was doing my major as a biologist. I started to read what is the reason of this kind of migraine. And I found in the literature that this kind of disease is related to maybe mutations in some ion channels. So that's why I jumped to make my PhD studies, focuses in, in the study of mutations of ion channels, particularly in calcium channels. This was in the Department of Cell Biology in the research and advanced studies of the National Polytechnic Institute in Mexico called, in short, the word Simbestab. So I made my PhD students with the Dr. Ricardo Felix, which is very important researchers in Latin America and around the world is, is very well known in the field of ion channels and in the physiology of neuroscience. And with him, I developed I think, my method, scientific method to study a problem in science, one question, what this phenomenon is happening. And also I developed 
my first publications in science. I published like three papers related to migraine. The familiar hemiplegic migraine is called, so I have some papers related. I used a patch clam studies. I made some of my first experiments in calcium magic and immunofluorescence. So I started to develop a little bit what is the, the via scientist. So from there, I exposed these results in, in an international conference in US. In this big conference called Neuroscience. I don't know the name of this. In, in the SFN, SFN. Society mm -hmm. for Neuroscience. So I went there and one researcher from the University of Iowa saw me there and she invited me to go to University of Iowa in the Department of, of Molecular Biology and Physics. And nice. I I did my postdoc there with she a couple of years. And I focused again my projects related to mutations in ion channels, but in this case related to deafness, disease and autism and from there, I went to University of Rush in Chicago with the Dr. Huri Huri Hu. I'm not sure if I pronounced correctly his name, but he's an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology, Pathogenesis, and Immunity in Rush University. And with him, I developed even more my preaching in focuses in neuroscience. So what I did is get the neurons from some animals and add some drugs and see how the neurons behave. So yeah, that was a third level in my studies because before I just made my studies in, in isolated cells. But in this case, I made some slices from neurons and I used the animals and I inject some drugs to the animals and then I get the neurons and I, I observe what's going on and I get some results. And yeah, that was for me more important in my perform as a scientist to home manage uh, other kind of experiments. And from there, I met Dr. Hinton and I moved to his lab and I started as a research scientist. And we discovered that I can analyze some structures in three dimensions. And he studied different uh, organs in cells, but mainly my focus was related with mitochondria. So what I doing with Dr. Hinton is analyzing the mitochondria in 3D structures using some software like Amira to compare different conditions like uh, mitochondria that have mutations in some proteins or that have some disease or different age and aging project and from there compare with the normal condition. And what I'm doing is analyze the different metrics that we can obtain from these structures and see, we'll try to answer why is these changes that we could observe. Also my function as a Hispanic that, that I am, like Latin person, and is improve, uh, promote and help and support people that comes from roots Latin to make science in, in Vanderbilt University, mainly in AJ in Dr. Hinton lab. But also we have consulting company that focuses in that, that way, help and talk with future young students in science that come from a minority communities to encourage them to make science in his lab is all that I could say. Now. That's fine. 
Okay, so thank you for that. And then from there, I want to kind of open it up to everybody to kind of ask very specific questions. So the very first question that I'm interested in is understanding about how did you cultivate your leadership in your laboratory or your workplace setting? And that's open to everybody. So I'll just start with Vivian and then she'll call on the next person and then each of y'all to kind of describe where did you develop your leadership skills? That's a really great question. And I I don't think I have thought of it that way. It's a really interesting question. I guess I've developed my leadership skills by observing other people around me. Most of what I've learned has come from people I admire. Just I mentioned already Dr. Deshmukh at UNC. I observed him a lot because he was the first I mean, not the first one, but I I think I was more mature at that stage when I was a postdoc to realize that he was a compassionate leader. And I haven't experienced that so directly, a person that was very smart and knowledgeable, but also extremely kind. And so I I really admire that quality of Mohanesh so that I think he was he was one of the first mentors that I realized, okay, I really like that his style. And I don't think that is because before that I haven't met other leaders or anything like that. But I think that because I had, he was so open to me and so direct with his approach and the way we discuss science. And he also allowed me to be in direct contact with him and how he mentored other students. Also, he was really great at making you realize your talents because many times in this career, you are often given you know, feedback of things that you need to improve, but very few times you are told, what are you good at? And he actually took the time to do both, not only to make me see my weaknesses and areas of de- that needed development, but also my strengths. And I think it was the first time that I had a leader like that. And I, other experiences also taught me a lot about leadership. And currently, I think I try to read a lot about leadership. I think Jose and I like to share books that we are interested in, in reading about leadership. One that we are reading now is The Cultural Code, which is really an amazing book that I recommend for any new assistant professor. And it really talks about that being a leader is not, I think, the old way of looking at leadership was the person that will be outspoken and, you know, always talking for the group. And actually, in my opinion, there are many kinds of leadership, but in my opinion, I think there is a space for a quiet leadership where you allow people in your team to take the lead. And sometimes it actually takes, it's much more difficult to take that background role. And I do that a lot. I try to encourage my trainees to take the lead. And so that's the way I I think I'm developing my leadership skills. It never ends. It, you continue to grow and continue to adapt in every step. And now at the stage that I am with the students, my goal is for them to find the kind of leaders that they can be regardless of the path that they take. And so, yeah, thanks for that question. It's, it's really great. And then Jose, what about you? <laughs> Thank you, AJ. I agree with Vivian. You know, you always look up to people. and. Based on our culture, you, we grow up in a culture, and, and we talk a lot about it, of respect. You always wait for them to interact with you. Then I have taken that approach. I have had PIs and mentors, which I, I always listen. And after a while, I will be able to start asking questions or requesting things from them. But I always have taken the approach of waiting a moment and then jump into it. 
Then I agree with Vivian. I, I had the opportunity when I was a postdoc to first have scientific interaction, like day-by-day interactions with him. His name is Conrad Hodkinson. He's from England. And I remember that at the beginning, it was tough for me to understand his accent. And then we, we got to be good friends and good collaborators. Later on, he became my immediate supervisor. And we developed a very good interaction in which it was very based on respect for each other. And he is the kind of leader that he will allow you to move your ideas forward. And that's something I cherish and I try to do in my lab with the people that work with me. I will initially coach them a lot in a one-by-one basis. I will go and do the experiments with them. And once they are comfortable, I will allow them to move the project forward. Following my guidance and following the steps you have to do. You know, you have to meet certain deadlines with grants or certain deadlines with paper. But after a while, I allow them to move them forward. And if they don't feel comfortable, I will go back and try to cost them that way. Because I think that the important part, I think that in that book that Vivian just mentioned, they say is that you have to be in the background and only move forward when you think it's needed. Otherwise, just let the group move forward. And that's something that in some cases work, in some cases doesn't work. I will not say that it's 100% successful, but what I will say that allow others to realize that they are able to lead. That's one thing that I'm very interested on, is that you allow the others to realize their potential. And then once they realize it, you're going to have a nice group to work with. And I think that it has been through interaction with different people that I'm able to recognize what I like to do and what I like to be. Yeah. Thank you, AJ. Elsie, what do you think about this question? Could you provide some extra? So I totally agree with what my colleagues had previously mentioned, Dr. Gam and Dr. Gomez. I think it's important for a leadership style to understand how to recognize strength in people, right? And then how to build upon that and how to make that strength inclusive in your team, right? And also sort of walk a balancing line where you recognize also people's, I don't want to say weaknesses, but things that they need to sort of strengthen and build. And so I think developing IDPs, individual development plans is key in that. Also, we write about developing the potions, right? The social potions, emotional potions, and how to build upon that when you are devising these IDPs for students. Also, making sure these environments that you're in, that your students are in, especially if they are diverse students, that they are supportive of their specific needs, right? So everyone's needs are different. Everyone's strengths are different. Everyone's challenges are different. And so what we need to do is bring that out in an sort of in a way that is supportive, continually supportive and intentional, right? So we can talk about these things all we want and pontificate, but being intentional and applying measurable sort of metrics to make sure that these sort of caveats are carried out. And that's a leadership style that is continually evolving. And it's not just a one cookie cutter mold approach. It's continually evolving. Mm -hmm. Personalities continue to evolve. People's needs continue to evolve. 
understanding how to bring the best out of your folks. So some people may feel uncomfortable speaking in public. Some people may have difficulty writing. Some people may have difficulty networking and collaborating with their colleagues or you know, cultivating relationships with potential mentors. So understanding that that's sort of like an overall challenge for a lot of people, but how do you allow someone to navigate those spaces and doing it in a way that's productive, that's meaningful, and that's intentional? I think that sort of summarizes being an effective leader. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's good. And then, Edgar, do you have any thoughts about leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the idea of being a good leader comes from my mentors, from Dr. Ricardo Felix. Also, I had the opportunity to make a, a stancy as a first postdoc in Mexico with Dr. Alberto Darson, which is really is a big fish in ion channels in all the world. So these first mentors that I have, and also Dr. Huri Hu in Russia University, the way that they interact with the people in their labs for me it's is how can how could be a, a, the idea of a mentor i mean the characteristic that i can say from them is that they are always very respectful persons with all the people they are very formal they are very truthfully for many persons they always say the truth you know you are right or you are wrong or you are doing something incorrect you are doing something good and they always promote the respect between the people and also they give you all the tools that develop your science. So their function is get funding for the students and also leave them, you know, they give them a little uh, free to develop their, their projects. <laughs> and when it's time to ask the results, this activity that they may frequently. So always be in contact with, with the students or with the, the people in, in the lab. Yeah, I mean, in my personal list, is be a leader is something that I need to develop. It's something that I think I it's always that I will be trying to pursue to to get. But for me, is a quality that few people have, you know, and is not anyone can be a leader. It's a natural quality that these kind of people have. And I, for example, for me. AJ is a person that can have these characteristics and someone that can manage several people and is something that is, is something that needs to be very particular in some person. But I think that you're also a leader too. I think sometimes you often don't focus on what qualities that you have. And I think you have a lot of great qualities to offer. So I think that even though I'm asking the questions to you all, don't focus on what I can do. Always focus on what you can do. And you are a great leader as well. You know, you manage a lot of the things in the laboratory, for example, related to teaching everybody how to do the structures, how to do the MATLAB coding, how to do the training of the segmentation so that it's not manual so much all the time. So I think all of those things are very important skills because you have to be a strong teacher, you have to be a listener to hear when people are not doing well how to be able to cultivate that potential inside of them to be able to do that motivation. So there's a lot of things that you offer too. So talk about yourself. But the next question is very important as well, because I think oftentimes we focus on others and sometimes don't reflect within ourselves. So this topic is kind of how do you cultivate mentorship in yourself? Like how do you continue to become a stronger mentor? And what type of skills or recommendations would you have for others that are interested? And then after that, I have two more questions for you all because we'll be running short on time. 
So Vivian, what are your thoughts about this? I think mentorship requires time and intention. I think Dr. Spencer mentioned intention. And I think that that is, to me, very important that you realize that mentorship will take time and will require to have the intention to do it and also the space for others to talk, right? So it cannot be just one way, especially with in our labs, we have graduate students at a different level. Some of them just started in the lab and some of them are more senior, but you can always learn about your own mentoring style from the students too. So you always have to be open to learning. And it's really amazing how every student will teach you something different, right? And every person at every level will teach you something. So I I feel that being open, being willing to give the time, being open to give the space for others to talk, because I think many times we have a tendency to, to speak all the time and not giving that space to others. Be willing to learn is important for mentoring. And then you really have to have the dedication to find opportunities for the people in your lab. So this comes back to something that everyone has, all of my colleagues have mentioned, right? It will be getting to know each person in your lab because each person is different. Each person wants to do something different. Not everyone is going to be doing the same after these, uh, you know, the guess of graduate studies. They're going to be wanting to have different careers in science or, or not in science. So you have to be there to support them and be on the lookout for opportunities. So Something that I tell the lab is that the standards in the lab are very high. We do our science, you know, with highest standards. But at the same time, I want them to have a space to think about their next step because I don't, you know, this is not the end for them. This is a temporary space. It's a temporary phase in their lives, which for many of them is very critical because of the age that they are, right? So it is very important for mentors to be aware that this is not all about you and your lab and your promotions. It's also their future, their path. You need to provide, as Dr. Garza Lopez said, tools for them to be able to develop their science and develop also, you know, whatever next is for them. But at the same time, all of the graduate students in the lab apply to pre-doctoral fellowships, even if they think they're going to go to industry, scientific writing, because developing those grand writing skills are very important for whatever you do in the future. But I think that the writing is a skill that it's really important to develop. So they always apply for grants. And I nominate students in my life for everything that they are eligible for. Because I do truly believe in their potential. And I truly believe that they should be competitive mm-hmm. at every stage. So we do that together. I think getting to know the mentees in your lab is essential. Thank mm-hmm. you. And then... Jose, what about you? Thank you, AJ. I, I agree with Vivian. I will only add a couple of things. One thing that is important with your mentees is that you have to be on the lookout for very subtle cues. What I mean by that is you have to be intentional when you ask questions. When I ask them, how are you doing? I will sometimes repeat it twice because the first time is your automatic answer. The second one, they will be allowed to think a little bit more. Then I always, I'm very worried about their well-being, you know, because our doing science is tough. You know, you are always hypothesis-driven. You have an answer, but the answer is never what you have in mind. Then you have to be prepared to be, to endure towards the time. The other thing I very, I have come with the time to appreciate is that 
you as a mentor, you have to be a champion for your mentees. As Vivian mentioned, I always encourage them. I am always building them up. You know, I have had people that I have worked with that they use the opposite. They break you down for you to get up. And I don't think that that, that is a good approach. I think that you have to be building them up and helping them. Then when you come back and try to show them where they have to improve, they will be more willing to hear you because they know that you have a good intention on it. Then to Vivian's point, those are the only things that I will add is listen down and be in the lookout for small cues and be a champion for them. As Vivian said, if they come to me and they say, oh, I want to do this training and I want to go to this place, let's go. If we have the resources, let's do it. And if it's something that you can do on your time and or in my time, we'll do it together. That's very important. Thank you. And Elsie, what about you? So I think it's important when we mentor that we follow our own advice. And so if we are not learning how to manage our time, right, we talk about time management. If we don't know how to exercise the power and saying no, when we get to a point where we just can't take on another assignment, be a part of a, of a group, because we need to sort of maintain our mental health, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think having time to regroup mentally, socially, spiritually is very important in the holistic approach to mentoring. And a lot of the times people forget that before I can mentor someone, before I can be there for someone, I need to make sure that I'm okay, right? And we always forget about ourselves in that process. So we know we wear multiple hats. And unfortunately, mentoring can be sort of that hat that's the unsung hero, right? But in order for us to help others, we need to be there, you know, 110% at times, right? You know, that means being in the lab physically, you know, someone emailing you after hours, picking up on some behavioral cues when someone may not be acting a certain type of way or not meeting a deadline. There's something that could be up with that. So not just listening in terms of mm -hmm. what someone tells you, but picking up on these cues, right? And so I think all of those goes into being successful in terms of mentorship. So we also have to understand and own the fact that we are diamonds in this field, right? We are allowing this door, this window to continue to remain open for these students. So we need to be there all the time, but we also need to take care of ourselves first and foremost. So as I said, mm -hmm. managing your time, learning how to say no, right? And being able to still be there for ourselves and our own families, right? So I think that is very important to always keep in the front of our minds in order for us to continue this very much needed mentorship relationship that we have with our students, with our collaborators, with our institutions, right? Making sure you cultivate these relationships and have allies. So allies past your department chair, allies past, you know, family. So making sure those channels are always sort of open and being used, right? So I think those are very important points that we also need to mention and, and retain. Thank you, Elsie. And then Edgar, do you have anything to add about what makes a, an effective mentor? Yeah, I think that it's a person that can give you and, and show you lessons during your, your path. For me, in my experience, it's something that I'm not, I'm not yet, so I'm not a mentor yet, but from my past mentors, I could say that they show me give me lessons 
and is the most precious thing that a mentor can give you because it's something that you will have for all your life, not only in the scientific path, but also for the rest of you or your life. Thank you. And I'm pretty sure you're a mentor to, to many who just don't realize it. So now I want to ask a little bit about being Latino and Latina and kind of some of the things that come with that in science where people maybe don't appreciate the innovation that you bring, but kind of, you know, maybe you have experienced a microaggression or something along those lines and kind of want to talk about like how you may take this particular situation and then how do you carve out a lesson that you can, you know, give back in your mentorship. So that's one way to kind of look at it as a positive spin. But I just want to, you know, just talk briefly about it. I don't want to bring up any, you know, thing that's very difficult or something that you don't want to talk about. You know, that's why I'm kind of leaving it open-ended and not kind of necessarily saying one thing or another. But I'm just curious about your thoughts about, you know, being a Latino or a Latina in science and how challenging that can be. So I will start with Elsie on this one, and then I'll give the other three time to think. So... I feel my perspective is quite unique in that I occupy a space where I self-identify as an Afro-Latina in education as a professional. I'm also a first-generation graduate. And so my parental sort of culture hails from Colombia on my father's side and Cuba on my mother's side. And so I feel I have that unique experience where I share in both worlds. So I identify, as I said, being an Afro-Latina, which means Racially, I identify as being Black, but ethnicity-wise, I am Latina because I speak Spanish and my parents are, are Latin. And in that case, I understand both worlds and how sometimes they may intersect in ways that are positive and unfortunately ways that are negative. And I think being a first-generation graduate, it allows me to have that lens that's needed when I mentor when I see other students or other professionals that may be struggling. And you don't have to have a title of mentor, right? Having a conversation with someone, offering suggestions, offering help, that's mentorship. And a lot of the times we don't realize that that's what that is. But cultivating, I feel that understanding, that trust to people from your own sort of perspective. So it's not just, you know, a language thing. It's also the struggles that we have in this country, right? And trying to move ahead. And a lot of Latin people face struggles with regards to maybe English not being their native language or their first language. Maybe when they speak English, they have an accent, right? Mm -hmm. Those are things that we have hangups about that I understand, right? And so I think when we try to bring those challenges up and recognize them and utilize them as strengths, I think that sort of lends itself to the table, right? And to the experiences that our colleagues need to understand in working with us. That's really good. And it's interesting that you mentioned different things where, you know, science is welcoming, but it's just a small percentage. And, you know, if you can get to that, you know, this is why we're having this discussion is because, you know, maybe one of those small percentages are listening and they can kind of open their perspective to so much because, you know, every country has so much to offer. Every story is so unique. And I think that sometimes where we kind of look at things as, oh, is this 
a normal thing, but everything's normal in a world that's full of diversity. That's why we study biology. We're learning that so many processes can exist and that so many signaling pathways can alter in one state this way or alter in this state and another way. And I think that's what we have to learn to exist in just the regular world. Edgar, could you tell us a little bit, you know, some of your perspectives of being a Latino in science and, you know, how that has shaped some of your science or your thinking? You don't have to share a lot if you don't want to, just, you know, whatever yeah, you want I, mean, I think that is not easy answer, as in the before I say it. You know, when I was in Mexico before go to U.S., some people, my mentor, Ricardo Felix, used to say, for some people, it's a shock. It's a shock be in U.S. as a mentee, as a trained person in science. And I didn't thought that that seriously, you know. But once there, you realize that that's true. It's, it's, it's a shock, you know, because one, as a, as a Latin person, I didn't learn a lot of things. In U.S. particularly, uh, I mean, I've never been in, in, in other country, but in U.S., one learned how to be a scientist in this country. And as before said, there are a lot of factors that are against you as a Latin from the language, from your color, from your roots, from your origin. And that is managed all that. And the people who behave from in you in a in a lab where maybe you are a minority and then manage at the same time your life outside from the lab or your life that is in, in your foreign country, in your origin country. So that is very stressful and is not, not easy. And that means a shock. <laughs> that could be very, I don't know. For me, I think that one learn to manage that or die in the process, you know? So it's, it's not easy. <laughs> you need to yeah. you need to need to survive or die in the process, and yeah, that's why we are talking up here because we need help the authors that come and to show you know this is not easy yeah. an easy way that you are you took to be here. But the good thing is that we're all doing it together, right? And I think that's the most important thing is that one thing that I've learned from you is that you know. I would say that one of the strongest characteristics that, at least in my opinion, that most Latino and Latinas have is that it's like family. It doesn't matter where you're necessarily from. You know, you might have your very personal differences that you communicate amongst yourselves, but and it's kind of more in a playful way. But one thing is that, you know, at least what I've seen in science and the community is that you all stick together so well. And it's because you're each other's support system. And I think what you said is so important that, you know, you either make it or you die in the process but a lot of people make it because they have that strong support system and that you're there for one another mm -hmm. and i think that's what we have to continue to maintain is the network to be able to help mm -hmm. and to do the things the next generation and i really like your point about you know what we do with the consulting company because it's all about helping the next generation to be able to acclimate in a way that is not going to be over shocking to them that they don't know kind of what to prepare for and one of the things that I really like as being a new faculty member, even though, you know, I'm black, you know, one thing I also love about Latino and Latinas is they reach out and they help everybody. And, you know, one thing that I like about Vivian is that, you know, she's a mentor to me here at Vanderbilt and I'm really enjoying everything. And she's like adopted me into her family. And I would love to get your perspective about this question as well. And then I have one last question for all of y'all. 
Thanks, Ajay. And thanks for your words. And I, I learned also from you, from Jose, from all of our interactions. I think that's where the value is, right? To getting to know other people and, and really grow uh, yourself and your science. When I think about the process of being a Latina, I think it's interesting because when I originally came to this country, I think my intention was to merge. I really was trying to look for not showing up too much. Like People didn't know that I was from, I, but my accent always it will lead to people asking me, where are you from? And, and it wasn't that I wasn't, I was proud, but it was so hard to kind of bring my culture into the mix. I think uh, it was, it, it was difficult at the beginning. But then I realized that the struggle of this, this sense of belonging was a struggle because I think one of the, this part of this process was, you know, at some point I wasn't from Colombia either anymore. That wasn't also my space. I will be there in Colombia and I will be missing uh, the U.S. and what the U.S. had provided to me and my life. And then I'll come back here. And then, of course, I miss Colombia. So somehow I became a constant immigrant. I don't, I'm not from anywhere. And I, you know, Thinking about people that may be listening to this is, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a difficult process. But the moment that this became easier was perhaps when I understood that I can bring value, that my experience is valuable, that the experience of people like me, like Jose, like Edgar, like Elsie, that come from different backgrounds, in this case from Latin America, is valuable to the scientific enterprise. You are needed in this process. Your perspective is needed and diversity uh, equals excellence. They are not different. And so I think if we can bring that perspective to the new generation, as, as AJ was mentioning, is going to be, hopefully we kind of fight those battles for them in the sense that I did you know, it took me time to understand my value and it took people to, to, you know, have time in their lives to let me know that what I was doing in their labs was important, that the ideas that I was bringing were critical for the research enterprise. And hearing that from a mentor and, you know, speaking to all the mentors here, telling a mentee, you are, that idea is amazing. It's great that you brought that idea into the, into the lab. Just tell them and give them value and give them credit. That can make a difference for your mentee. That is where I think that struggle that I cannot compare with other people also. I am a Latina, but I'm also white, right? And so I struggle with the word white. <laughs> Jose knows this because I feel I'm, I'm a mix and I never, but I am, I, I have privilege. And so I now think that it's very important that we bring the new generation with a sense of value and a sense of worth. We have an eight-year-old who is a Latino too, and who we want, we want him to understand that this space also belongs to him and that this country is better because of people like us, people like our parents. I remember one story, and I hope Jose doesn't mind that I tell it, but when we were at Cleveland, we had a presentation and it didn't go as well as we wanted it to be. And when we were in the car, but at that time, Jose's father was visiting from Colombia. And Jose's father used to work in a coffee farm. So he was a coffee uh, farmer. He used to work in the coffee farm as well as your grand grandfather. And when we were complaining in the car, Jose's dad is, is very quiet. But all of a sudden, he said, look, can you imagine when I was growing coffee, that I will have a son that is in the U.S. that has, you know, a PhD and a daughter-in-law that is also a doctor 
and that they are making this career in this country. And he gave us perspective, right, of how mm-hmm. past generations, in my case, you know, my grandmother, she didn't have a chance to go to school. And so we are their dreams, right? So we are living their dream. And it's our responsibility, I think, to bring others with us to support them and to lift them up and to maybe... If we can have some of those struggles that they don't have to struggle, I think it will be completely worth it. Thank y'all. And I'm getting a signal to wrap up. So one thing (laughs) that we can do is, you know, kind of have closing thoughts and kind of tie everything together. So please tell me what you're drinking today. So for me, like I'm drinking out of Talavera cup. And this particular cup is special to me because it's from someone that I know very well. And in particular, today I'm actually drinking just water and then I'm rotating between some juice, like a ginger juice to kind of just, you know, help kind of a pick me up because it's going to be a long day today for writing for grants, <laughs> to be honest. And so I just kind of wanted to get your closing thoughts around that. And then also, what do you think the future holds for you? So I will kind of now just open it up to, let's see, Jose, and then we'll go from other people after that. Thank you, AJ. You know, I have my pick-me-up auction is coffee. It's Colombian coffee. It's my drink of choice. I like it. I don't know. As a kid in Colombia, I remember drinking coffee since I think that there is no age limit. They will say, oh, if it's a kid, just put milk. <laughs> you know, it, we will never say. It, it was so funny because you will be having coffee at any time. And I will be able to have coffee before bed, 9 p.m. And I will go to sleep like, like nothing else. Then my drink of choice today is coffee. And I will say about the future. And yeah, I think that the future is, is, is an interesting one because I think that we are at a juncture in which we are taking two paths. I will always work in science and I will always identify myself in that field. As a Latino, I think that we are opening doors for others. I don't know how many of those we are opening for ourselves, but we are open for others. And I will echo by almost everybody has mentioned today, including you, AJ. I think that the the definition of progress is that your struggles are not going to be the struggles of the ones that are coming behind. That for me, at least, I don't remember who I hear it from. But I hear a long time ago, that's the definition of progress, that you are going through a path that you are making it easy for the next generation. And I think that that I consider to be my main goal, that I'm able to go through the path and allow them others to move forward easily. I remember, as Vivian mentioned, I think that I have friends that have told me this. You are the first Latino I met in science. And that's great because that for them is not going to be, oh, who is a Latino or how, how they are, how they speak. I think that all of us have at a certain point opened some doors, maybe not for us, but maybe for others. That will be, I think, the future. And that's part of my goal. Thanks, AJ, for the invitation. I really enjoy it a lot. I really enjoy it. Thank you very much. And thank you for those words. Elsie, can you kind of answer the same thing? So I'm also having cafe, but it's more of an espresso because we tend to like stronger stuff or 
things that will help us sort of maintain better focus or like as <laughs> my mom yeah. likes to say, something that can give you a nice chancletazo so that you can focus. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that that's I good. drink. <laughs> and as Jose was saying, in our culture, we drink coffee from like almost infancy. And mm-hmm. it's something that is very normal to us. And I know that those that are not from Latin cultures find that to be a little strange. But, you know, we just love coffee. And a lot of the times we get that addiction from our grandparents, our abuelos. Mm-hmm. And they'll start us off with, you know, the coffee mixing with like maybe a tabla of chocolate with, you know, mm-hmm. some butter and bread and just, you know, that's kind of like how we end up with our coffee addictions. But that's a cultural thing for us. And I would just like to say in terms of the future, we all know that the Latinx diaspora is the fastest growing minority group in the United States. And so what that means is we are going to have more of us come through our institutions of higher learning, who are going to be future leaders in society that will help mold a lot of the decisions and the policies that are in our society, regardless of what you know presidential administration is there. So I think it's important to keep that in mind and understand that that's a power that we have and we should wield with responsibility and acknowledgement and purpose. And so in saying all of that, We need more mentors. We need folks like us to be placed in these positions where we can sort of continue to move that needle forward. And I think that definitely is what the future of being Latinx in STEM, in institutions of higher learning, what that means. So keeping that in mind is very important. We are Latin people with very strong familial ties. You know, we come to this country to want to do better for ourselves so that we can do better for our families, whether they're here with us in the States or still back home in our our mother countries, our motherlands. And that's just very innate within the Latin community to always be helpful, to always keep that door open, to learn, to laugh, and just continue to make these powerful impacts in, in society. Thank you. And then Edgar? Yeah, I mean, my favorite beverage is uh, coffee. Every morning I'm drinking coffee and I think it's, it's a great beverage. It's, uh, have a, a lot of antioxidants, riboflavonoids. <laughs> and uh, I mean, recently I read an article and that say that increase your time life, you know, so it's mm-hmm. a wonderful yeah. beverage. Even though it just helped me to wake up, you know, every morning. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm drinking medium roast coffee. And this is uh, from Chiapas. We get uh, some coffee from from Chiapas, which is my favorite here in Mexico. And this cup is kind of a souvenir that we get in Merida, Yucatan, on some familiar trips a long time ago when I was uh, younger. So we went to the pyramids in Chichen Itza, visit there. And yeah, I'm a coffee lover. And also (laughs) helps to to talk and open your mind. (laughs) I love coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then lastly, Vivian, what are you drinking and your final words about the future? And then Edgar, I'll come back to you about the future so you can get a second to think what's next for yourself. I am not an exception to the rule. I'm also drinking coffee and this mug is actually from Medellin and it's in honor of the coffee farmer. So I really appreciate this mug a lot. 
And about the future, I think that uh, having the privilege of working with the new generation of scientists, I am sure that the future is bright and it's going to be diverse and it's going to be inclusive. We know that the challenges and the struggles that people are going through, they are listening, are real. They are not made up in your mind. They are real. But as you can see by today, and I hope by your experiences in wherever you are, is that many of us are really committed to foster an environment uh, where we can have both excellence in research and the science that we do for the benefits of society, but also kindness and, and taking the time to appreciate you as a person, as a human being. I think that that will be an amazing future, not only for us as we grow older, <laughs> but also for the next generation. And, and this is the dream I have also for my son. And so I, I hope that that's what is going to happen if we continue working hard on this. So thanks, AJ, for giving us the space. Thank you. Thank you for willingness to come on board and you know talk. It's been really fun. And then, Edgar, what's the future hold for you? My future, I think, is keep collaborating with, with you and, and help others that come behind and encourage them to be a scientist. That is possible, that anyone can be a scientist, particularly Latin people that come to the U.S. And yeah. And, and keep helping the people in, in your life, in Bandar. Thank you. Okay, so with that, I would like to thank each of y'all, Dr. Gomez, Dr. Spencer, Dr. Gamma, Dr. Garza Lopez. Thank you all for coming and being in this space with me. It's really been fascinating to learn so much about each of y'all. And I just want to know if someone wanted to follow you on Twitter, what would be your Twitter handle so that people could follow you? So I'll start with Dr. Spencer. <laughs> sure. So mine is the at symbol, Elsie Lacubana. And then Vivian. Mine is at Vigamalab. Okay, thank you. And then Jose. Mine is at J-A, my last name, Gomez C7. Thank you. And Edgar. So thank it's you. at your name, Edgar, so E-D-G-A-R, and then G-A. Then four seven two two seven three six eight. Okay, and then if you wanted to follow Biotechniques, please do, and please sign up so that you can be a part of the podcast. And then we will be streaming the podcast on other places as well, and we'll be in touch with those in the future. And if you want to follow me at PhDGProtein86, and thank you for your time. And this is all for today, and until the next time, thanks.